When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, See, God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. Then he added, See, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And it is by God's will that you have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This is the word of the Lord. Dr. Fred Craddock, a former Barton Clinton Gordy presider here at Boston Avenue Church, and for many years holder of a distinguished chair in New Testament studies at our Candler School of Theology, Emory University in Atlanta, Georgia, has written commentary on this book of Hebrews. He says, for sure, this letter was not written before the year 60 of the first century, nor was it written after the year 90, but sometime during that 30-year period, this person wrote to a church. He seems to have really remarkable use of the Greek language. He seems to have a keen understanding of Judaism, particularly as it's described in the Greek translation of the Jewish Bible called the Septuagint. That he paints a more human figure of Jesus than any other writer in the New Testament, that he really deals at great length with the humanity of Mary's child, Jesus, that if we're going to understand the passage I've just read with you, you have to understand that this author has in mind Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies, only he and only once a year and ask God to move from his seat of judgment to the seat of mercy. All around the Holy of Holies, sacrifices are being offered. But in this case, the one who walks into the Holy of Holies to be that high priest for us is Jesus of Nazareth, who's come to offer himself once for all. The Levitical priests keep standing because they must offer one sacrifice after another. But our Lord Jesus has taken his seat because sacrificing has been done away forever. I've underlined four things here. The first is that part about sacrifices, offerings of this kind you do not desire. This author was certainly not the first to say that, nor was Jesus the first to say that. Isaiah had that in his book 800 years before. Isaiah wrote, The Lord told me he was sick at his stomachs, smelling all that fresh blood. God told me he was sick at his stomach, smelling all that burned flesh. What does the Lord require of you? And then he talks about getting up from your many prayers and going and doing the will of God in God's world. Now, the Jews were certainly not the only ones offering sacrifice in that first century of the Common Era. In fact, archaeological evidence shows that people all around the planet were offering sacrifice, that all ancient men and women were aware that they weren't in control of what was going on. And when bad things happened to them, which they didn't want to be repeated, they thought perhaps if they offered up something really special to them, the gods would be kinder. 
So if you were a farmer, you offered up vegetables or fruits. If you were a hunter, or you'd learn to domesticate your animals and you offered up some animal. And if still bad things came, too much rain, not enough rain, sickness, death, some got the crazy idea that they should offer up human beings, either one of their own or one they could capture from another tribe. Now, you know, Jews have not offered sacrifice since the year 70 of the first century of the Common Era. No sacrifice in Judaism for more than 1,900 years. So this is not a criticism of Judaism the way it is worshipped, celebrated, and lived out today. This is for us Christians to hear very clearly that sufferings, offerings that wreck suffering on people are not pleasing to God. Uh, Norman Bindroth is a pastor up in Massachusetts uh, he's written recently that T.S. Eliot says April is the cruelest month of the year. Norman says, I'd like to nominate December. He said, December was wonderful for me the first 11 years of my life. And then just before my 12th Christmas, my father was tragically injured in an accident. My father and two others were on a scaffold on the side of a building putting on some new framing when suddenly that scaffolding collapsed and my father was paralyzed from the shoulders down for the rest of his life. Christmas Eve, my twelfth year, this pastor writes, my family went to the hospital to see my dad. I didn't know just how bad this was going to be the rest of his life, but I knew it was bad. And suddenly Christmas was not fun. This was the longest and coldest night of the year. Then Norman writes, I believe there is a cry that comes from Bethlehem, but it's not only the cry of a newborn baby, it's also the cry of God. It's the cry of every mother who's ever had to bury one of her children. It's the cry of every old man who's lost a wife he's cherished for 60 years. It's the cry of every worker who's worked hard and has been told, we have no job for you after Friday at five. Surely one of these Christmases, God Almighty will cry, enough! Enough hurt, enough pain, enough loneliness, enough suffering, enough darkness. Let there be light and joy. Number two, this author says, Christ came into the world. This is past tense. Our Lord Jesus did come, this author believes, as do we. This is a fact. A flesh and blood person has come to embody the very presence and being of God for us. A few days ago, the Wall Street Journal had a big article about what did the Magi really see? Now, there's an article like this almost every Christmas in one publication or another. Astronomers have been trying to figure out for years what could the Magi have seen when Jesus was born. We know there were Magi. Uh, you remember Philo of Alexandria? He was a contemporary of Jesus of Nazareth. They never met each other. Philo was there on the northern coast of Africa. Jesus never uh, went very far from 
Bethlehem to Nazareth, uh, back to Jerusalem near the end of his life, uh, maybe 80 miles or so at a given time, uh, not very far, not to Alexandria. Yet Philo wrote that there were magi who lived in Persia who went out from their villages so that they could see the heavens more clearly in the darkest part of the night, who were looking for a king of kings, a lord of lords. Herodotus also wrote about these Persians. He called them priests. Priests who go out from the villages by horseback into the darkest part of the night and spend hours looking up at the heavens because they are hoping one day to worship the King of kings, the Lord of lords. It helped the astronomers a few years ago when someone discovered that Constantine's calendar is off by a few years. They had seen evidence of some bright lights back there in history, but not right at the turn from B.C. to A.D., from B.C.E. to C.E. Constantine didn't get it right. His scholars were looking back more than 300 years and they miscalculated a little bit because archaeological evidence today shows that Herod the Great died in the year 4 before the Common Era. Now, the Gospels say he was still alive when Jesus was born. If that's the case, then Jesus was born no later than four, perhaps as early as five or six. Guess what? There's some evidence of a comet back at that time. There's some evidence of a supernova near that time. But more scholars tend to think there was an unusual alignment of two of the planets at that time. And in fact, one of those planets, Jupiter, was called by ancient people the royal star, the kingmaker. They thought it was a star. They thought Saturn was a star. They were not, of course. They were planets not giving off their own light, but reflecting light from the sun. But just about that time, they lined up in a really unusual way and would have been far brighter than people who studied the stars every night would have been accustomed to. But even in the Wall Street Journal, the last paragraph came to this discussion. But if there was an unusually bright light, what they found will have to be answered by every individual. What did they find? Who was this baby? What his future What his role? What would he mean to a village, to a world? This author says, when Christ came. Okay, number three, the part that gave me the title for today's sermon. Twice in this brief passage it says of Jesus, See, O God, I have come to do your will. I have come to do your will. I would like to have talked with the Maddies this week, new members of our church that originally have born in India, from India. There's a new movie out now from India called Slumdog. Michael Smith and the Tulsa World reviewed that movie this week. Also had a rather lengthy interview uh, with the director of the film. Um, the Maddies could tell me how accurate uh, this might be, but I'm going to tell you what Michael Smith had to say about the movie. It's a story of an 18-year-old boy who's grown up among some of the poorest people in Mumbai. He's been a beggar himself. It's the only way he has to feed himself. 
And then as he gets a little bit bigger in late teens, he gets a job in one of those calling centers, you know. A lot of American corporations have farmed out to India uh, their responses to people who call their companies. I saw a 60 Minutes program a couple of years ago that showed how these Indians are trained to answer calls. If their phone says this call is coming from Tulsa, Oklahoma, they try to talk like an Oklahoman. If this call is from Mississippi, they try to talk like somebody from Mississippi. If this call is from Boston, Massachusetts, they try to talk like somebody from Boston, Massachusetts. But the key player in this movie is not answering calls. He's just serving tea to those who do. And then one day he hears about a television program very similar to our Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? And he applies and gets chosen. He has no education. None. If you've watched that show, you know that all the questions are multiple choice. And he gets the first one right. And the second. And the third. And the fourth. All the way to the top. The police rush down and arrest him. There is no way, they say, he could have had all those answers. How did you cheat? How did you cheat? And the movie is about his recalling moments in his life when the answer to the first question was given to him. The answer to the second question was given to him. The answer to the third question was given to him. Mr. Brawl, who directed the movie, said, In India, there's a strong sense of destiny, of having been sent to a particular time and place to do something significant. Michael Smith asked him, Do you think it was destiny that took you to India? And he said, I'm not sure, but they would say, yes. And then Michael Smith wrote, Two things I gain from this movie. Number one, the most important questions in anyone's life can never be answered with money alone. And second, answers are being given to you at various points in your life. Are you paying attention? And the Wesleys call that experience prevenient grace, where one looks back and sees that grace was coming pray the neary before. Coming before you even knew how to respond. One day your grandfather said. One day your grandmother did. One day a first grade teacher, an eighth grade teacher, a high school football coach. And you look back and say, wow. God was shedding a little light right there, a little light right there for me. Okay. Number four. You have been sanctified. This word sanctify, remember, comes from Latin sanctus. It means set apart. The word in English is holy. It means set apart. A sanctuary is, is taken from this word, a place set apart. We put stained glass windows. They let light in, but we don't see cars and buses and fire trucks and things going along the street. We're set apart for an hour here set apart. But we're to be a people set apart, not for privilege, but for service. And a people set apart for a different kind of behavior. 
We're not supposed to act like all of them. We're supposed to act like Him, our Lord, who came, who entered the Holy of Holies and offered up Himself once for all to show us the very heart of a loving, forgiving, graceful, gracious God. This story. Dr. Frank Yamada teaches at McCormick Seminary in Chicago, Illinois. And he recently wrote <clears throat> about his father. He said, I'm Japanese-American. And I grew up with a Japanese-American father who never expressed affection, didn't express emotion, who seemed to sort of have as his goal a stoic kind of walking through life. He said, I, I guess I really always felt love, but he never told me. And he never hugged me. And then he said, I, I've tried to figure that out. Maybe it was something culturally from his upbringing, something culturally from my native people in Japan. Or maybe it was the experience my father had, he said, during World War II when he was rounded up with his family and put into a, a wired-in enclosure just because we were Japanese, that we might be friends of the Japanese who had bombed Pearl Harbor. And they had to live out the war in those fenced enclosures. Maybe all of that caused him not to show emotion. But Dr. Yamada says, not so long ago, I had a week in Princeton University. And then I was flying home. My wife and I had a little one-year-old boy, he said. And later my wife would tell me that my father just insisted late that afternoon that he take that baby to the airport to meet me. And she kept saying, but it'll be way past his bedtime. And sure, Father said, I'm taking him to see his father. And Dr. Yamada says, I didn't know all this was going on. I got off the plane and I started down that concourse. And finally, I saw my father holding this little one-year-old of mine. And when my father and my baby saw me, my dad put him down. And he started waddling toward me like a one-year-old can do. And he was going fast as the legs would take him. And I scooped him up in my arms and held him close to my chest. And just as I did, I could see past him to my father's eyes. And I believe they were saying to me, I know how you love this child. And that's the way I've always loved you. Amen.